Welcome in for another edition of the Quickfire Podcast. I'm Nathan Jackson here with Nathan Farmer, ready to bring you all things UVU sports. Nathan, how are we doing this week? I'm uh, doing great. We're doing this a little different. We're recording at about 7.30 p.m. as opposed to 8.30 a.m. I'm feeling okay. a lot more lively. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to making this a, a regular. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also, I mean, we're in a new revamped studio. Thanks to Michael Bratzman. Shout out to him for figuring out that we've been recording off of uh, in a, let's say, hindered setup this entire time. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what's been going on with the podcasting setup. I don't know how the other podcasts have been recording with this setup. Because I know we're definitely not the only podcast that uses this setup. So, I, yeah, I'm just confused, honestly. <laughs> Me as well. And we'll jump right into it. Women's basketball had two very exciting games in Texas this past week, defeating UTRGV on Thursday, 59-56, to and then losing to Lamar, 59-55, to in double overtime. In Thursday's game, Madison Grange went off for 24 points and a career high and also had the go-ahead three with under a minute left in the game. The Wolverines also had 18 turnovers in that game. Am I correct? Yeah, that's, I mean, I I just added that little note in there just because it's it's been a little a talking point, especially, I mean, it was more so a problem with the game against Lamar on Saturday than uh, that game on Thursday. But I mean, I, I'll confess, I was at the BYU basketball game that night, but then I, I was just checking scores at like all the timeouts and stuff. And I was like, oh boy. That's a close game with under a minute to go. Turned it on just in time to see Madison Grange drain that three. Six of seven for three on the night. Yeah, I mean, she, she was ballistic. I mean, set aside her game uh, yesterday against Seattle U where she didn't have zero points, but she has been on arguably her best uh, scoring stretch as a Wolverine for and sure. She's gone from last season coming off the bench and having good games, great defense on ball. Um, and good offensive performances to working where into the starting lineup and now being like a force to be reckoned with on the offensive end. Yeah, after Lamar, the game against Lamar on Saturday, she had, I believe it was five straight games in double figures for the Wolverines, mm-hmm. which, I mean, you kind of know what you're going to get with, you're going to get 15 to 20 from Josie Williams, you're going to get 10 to 15 from Maria Carvalho, and then you don't really know where the points where, are going to come from. Yeah, so I think if, if uh, Madison Grange can be that third scorer for the Wolverines, consistently dropping like 8 to 10 per game, they're going to be in good shape heading towards the WAC tournament here in about a month and a half or so. Definitely. And in Saturday's game, Shafano led the Wolverines with 14 points, and Grange and Williams both had 10. Uh, Williams got her 12th double-double of the season in the loss and the team had 22 turnovers. And it seems like we keep talking about this, but man, this women's basketball team, uh, their Achilles heel has always been turnovers. And I mean, even to start the season, they had 24 turnovers against Park University, which is an NAIA school. And I, I, that, to me, that's just, uh, if you want to be able to contend, you can't turn the ball over at that high of a volume. Yeah, I mean, it's just, that we sound like a broken record. We bring it up every week. It seems like, I mean, they're shooting... Um, at one point during that game on Saturday, I, I was covering that game for the, the review, and UVU was shooting something like 55% or something from the field. And this was like in the first half, but they had like 16 turnovers. So you 
you get the offense that you want, but it's the fact that you're not getting looks off because yeah. you're turning the ball over. Well, and, and there was another, um, at that same point, Lamar had shot, had taken like 10 more shots. Like you, you, they just weren't getting a shot off, which is, I mean, you'd rather take and miss a shot, obviously, than turn the ball over and not get that shot off. You want to at least have a chance Give, give yourself a chance. It's like putting the ball in the basket. Yeah. Uh, they had a much better game against Seattle U on Monday. Maria Carvalho, I think she had nine turnovers in that game against Lamar, but then she only had one turnover uh, last night against the Red Hawks. She had 16 points, three rebounds, three assists. Josie Williams didn't get a double-double. I feel like that's more, more of a rare more, occurrence. <laughs> more of a rare occurrence than her getting a double-double. I th- and it'd be interesting to see because I know you – uh, women's basketball, they've had a bunch of games postponed and canceled because of COVID. But one thing I've, I've kind of been thinking about is like, and we'll get into this with Fardaz, he, who's currently leading the nation in double-doubles on the men's side, but like not necessarily the number of double-doubles that Josie Williams has, but like the percentage of games that, that she's, she's actually getting played. And that's, played that's and getting fair. a double-double. I think but, that that could be a worthwhile stat looking into because yeah. honestly, I feel like if you did, you would find she's probably top five in the nation easily. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Dawes, he's only had two games without a double double. I don't want to get I don't want to get into that yet because yeah, we haven't. That's, that's but, fair. Yeah, <laughs> the women's basketball team has one more game this week uh, against Chicago State, and that is on Thursday. Uh, men's basketball, they got on back back on track with a pair of wins against uh, UTRGV and Lamar this week. Obviously, you don't have any gimme games in any sport, really, but these were kind of two that uh, they were expected to win, not just because they're at home, but because they're against uh, two teams that are, especially with Lamar being 2-16 and 16 going into that game, uh, teams that you're expected to beat. Speaking of Fardos, he had a double-double uh, on Thursday against the Vaqueros with uh, 13 points and 14 rebounds. And a stat that stood out to me when I was looking through the box score, uh, Jaden McClanahan had five steals. He also, I believe, in that game had, I want to say, nine points. Mm-hmm. He was like yeah. on the brink of double figures, but he had two huge threes down the stretch. Yeah, for sure. And that, that one was a game that was... Uh, a whole lot closer than I think many expected. And that game against Lamar, I was just kind of an ugly game. Poor shooting from both teams. Wolverines shot 36%, and the Cardinals shot 28%. But uh, Fardo's got another double-double. Uh, he leads the nation with 17 double-doubles. And not only does he lead the nation, but he has three more than the next best player. That's pretty impressive. Which I, and he's been garner, garnishing a lot of national attention across the board because of that. Um, I believe in a mock draft. I may have mentioned this last week. They had Fardos Amac at the 30th pick mm-hmm. in the mock draft for ESPN. Yeah. And so they, they men's basketball, they also only have one more game this week. Um, they're heading out on the road to play at Chicago State. Thursday. For men's basketball, every single whack win is important now that mm-hmm. you win now that they've kind of blundered a couple games where they're three and three in conference, you can't drop any gimmies and you need to win the games against the top whack opponents at this mm-hmm. point because otherwise you're not going to get those first round, second round buys and you're going to have to play against every single tough opponent in that tournament. And mm-hmm. I mean, the whack, we talked about it earlier this season. We thought 
it was a foregone conclusion that the Wolverines were going to take it. But it is a very tightly contested conference. And I think that any one of four teams could take the WAC championship. Yeah, when I'm, I'm just looking at the standings now. I think nobody really expected Seattle U to be in the position they are right now. They're 6-0 and leading the conference. Um, even Sam Houston State, I don't think anybody really expected them to be towards the top right there. I mean, um, you're looking at teams like Abilene Christian and Stephen F. Austin, who are kind of middle of the pack, right around, hovering around the same area uh, UVU is right now. UVU is four and three in conference. Stephen F. Austin is also four and three, and Abilene is three and five. Um, those are all teams that they're perennial NCAA tournament teams in their previous conference. Just looking ahead to the WAC tournament, I mean, it's going to be a crapshoot. I, I, I think, think any of these teams, any. I believe it's 18 top eight teams make the conference tournament. And I think any of those teams could make it and then put and pressure on a team that I they mean, would face in the NCAA tournament as you well. You can see a team like UTRGV that can just get hot and make a close game where it shouldn't be one. I, I could even say that I would even go as far to say is a team like that could get hot going into the WAC tournament and find their way into the NCAA tournament mm-hmm. easily. And for UVU to try to clinch the program's first NCAA tournament appearance, what they need is consistency. And uh, I think you'll find that through AMAC in the post, but you need the shooters to show up and you need to you need to avoid turning over the ball, especially down the stretch, because the, uh, those key plays where you have turnovers really kill you. I think that getting Justin Harmon back, he's been out for a couple of games. I think that that will really help. He's a great on-ball defender off the bench. And I think that him and Blaise Neal kind of anchor that perimeter defense where they're able to make big stops down the stretch. Yeah, I mean him and Trey Woodbury, I know we we haven't really we haven't really gotten like an update on what his injury looks like, what his prognosis looks like, but if you're able to add those two late in the season, I mean that's like getting a like an NBA or baseball or something a trade deadline acquisition right at the very end adding it's some like- you arguably one of the top three players on your yeah, team. Yeah, seriously, yeah. Trey Woodbury's instant offense. So if they are able to get him back this season, I think that will be the difference maker heading into the WAC tournament. Yeah, and the fact that they've been able to, when UVU was sitting pretty at, like right after beating BYU on their home court, we were thinking, man, sky's the limit for this team. But even then, like the fact that they've been able just to get to 13 and six without those two key contributors for the most part this season has been, I mean, it can't be understated. Yeah. And I think that um, there will be an adjustment period for the offense, especially kind of who's going to be in the consistent rotation, who's going to be getting a lot of the looks. And I think there may be a struggle between Connor Harding and uh, Trey Woodbury a little bit if he does return this season, because Trey, I mean, let's be honest, Trey Woodbury was the guy on offense last season. Um, and Amac was also very much a big part of that, but he wasn't near the offensive player he is this season. Yeah, I mean, Trey Woodbury, I mean, he was the leading scorer last season. Yeah. I mean, and that, when you're taking that out of a team, you're going to have a rough time. It's it's like if you took, and this may be a stretch, but it's like if you took Kobe out of the Kobe and Shaq duo, where you have Amac and Woodbury, and they are able to stretch the defense thin because if you close out on the perimeter on Woodbury, you're going to find... AMAC in the paint, and if the defense collapses in the paint, you're going to find Woodbury on the perimeter. So I feel like that dual threat is going to be very important, and I hope that the Wolverines are able to get Woodbury back this season. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I mean, I would say it's kind of more like the Warriors team a few years ago 
Uh, when you had Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant, but you didn't have Steph, I think that's kind of a similar comparison. You still get really good production from the guys that you have, but you, when you're missing that leading scorer, you're going to have some hard times. That's fair. Moving on to track and field, they're prepping for their next meet this Saturday, January 29th at Idaho State. And in some news and notes, women's soccer announced the signing of transfer goalkeeper Adalia Serrano, who spent the last four seasons as the backup goalie for UCLA. She will have two years remaining eligibility heading into this season. Uh, Moving on to wrestling, the NCAA has announced the first coaches panel ranking for the 2022 Division I Wrestling Championships. This is like the main ranking system that they use for deciding the seedings and whatnot at the NCAA championships at the end of the season. Uh, UVU has two wrestlers currently ranked. Uh, Hayden Drury is number 13 in the 133-pound class, and Evan Bachman is ranked number 24 in the 197-pound class. Taylor Lamont, a notable omission from this, but from what I was reading up on, he is uh, can't qualify for those rankings yet because he's, I believe he's only had between all of the meets that he's done, he's only had three actual like bouts with another wrestler. Yeah, he's, so, he's, he's sat out a lot of this season. Yeah. So he's, he's ranked as high as number 12 in a bunch of other rankings. Um, but like I said, he's just hasn't wrestled enough to qualify for these rankings yet. And wrestling after, uh, having the last two weeks worth of meets postponed due to COVID protocols, uh, they'll be back in action this weekend hosting number nine, Missouri, and Wyoming in the Lockhart Arena for a duel this Saturday. Moving on to men's soccer, former UVU men's soccer player Matt Gay kicked a game-winning field goal to send the Rams to the NFC Championship game this Sunday in LA. Gay played two seasons for the Wolverines uh, men's soccer club before transferring to Utah, where he walked on as the kicker for the Utes. I honestly had no idea that he had played at UVU. I feel like I had heard that when he had transferred to Utah and he was kicking for the the Utes, having watched a couple of Utah games um, when he was kicking for them. Um, they like always mentioned that, oh, he used to play soccer at UVU, and it just like never clicked in my head. And I kind of just forgot about that. But I mean, that's... I mean, obviously, Kyle Beckerman had nothing to do with that. But that's honestly another feather in the cap that you can... You can say like we turn out professional athletes here, and yeah, I mean, when I you... mean, and he, he, I actually wrote a story on this this past mm-hmm. week, and that'll be coming out in the print edition, um, I believe today. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a rather unique path in terms of his tr- uh, path to the NFL. He went to try out for BYU as well as Snow College. They both kind of told him, "Nah, we're kind of set right now," and so then he went to a summer camp at Utah. And Utah ended up giving him a walk-on position. And then Utah's kicker, I believe, missed a field goal later in the fourth quarter. And he got the nod to either he missed a field goal or he got injured. But eventually, he got the nod to start. And then that season, he actually won. Uh, I can't remember the name so of the, the award. I think it's the Lou, Lou Groza Award. Yeah, yeah. The Lou Groza Award. Uh, and that highlights the best kicker in the nation. He won that after just barely garnishing the starting position. Um, and then got drafted to Tampa Bay. And I think it's very fitting that he hit the game winner over the Tampa Bay team that dropped him. Yeah, I mean, that's just like karma to the highest degree. It's like, you cut me, then well, I'm going to send I hit you back. And then 48-yarder for the win. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll forget the 47-yarder that he missed I, I short. In the post-game interview, they asked him how he felt, and he's like, I came up short from 47. Uh, and I think that he was kicking himself about that. But, I mean, you can't kick yourself when you hit the game winner. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was honestly just so confused. Like, how do you miss short from 47? But, I mean, he, he totally redeemed himself, and of course. I have to correct myself. It was, I believe it was like 31 that was for the win or 37, somewhere in there. Yeah. Some, it, yeah. Was, it wasn't that far out because the Rams had like two back-to-back 30-yard yeah, plays down they, the field. Yeah. Very similar yeah. to the Chiefs game. Yeah, I mean, all those NFL playoff games this weekend. The, the, man, that was the best weekend of football I've ever seriously, seen in my life. yeah. Like, I, I, As a fan of the sport... I have never been more entertained, especially that Chiefs uh, and Bills game. I I can honestly say that I wanted the Bills to win that because I wanted their mm-hmm. redemption season, right? Mm-hmm. Especially after last season. But both teams played absolutely out of their minds in the last final two minutes. Just as a, as a 49ers fan, I mean, obviously that the game against the Packers was the highlight of my weekend as far as those games go. But something that I was seeing through 49ers fans as they were watching the Chiefs-Bills game is like, holy smokes, these teams are insane. Like, they're on another level. Like, whoever wins... Any other team in the playoffs, I feel like those two teams are on another level offensively. Yeah, like, whoever wins that game, for the most part, people were saying is going to, at the very least, be the AFC champion. (laughs) But that said, I think Joe Burrow, I mean, he's had a chip on his shoulder this whole season, his whole career, really. I wouldn't count him out Don't against count him out, the Chiefs. No. but I, Especially because the volatility of the Chiefs season so far. I mean, they started yeah. out horribly, mm-hmm. and then they were able to get back on track. And I, I think Tyreek Hill was a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. He had an incredible game. Um, yeah. Obviously, Kelsey's huge for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, I think what it comes down to is pass protection for Mahomes. And he has the f- foot speed to be able to get free. But if they can give him a solid at least three or four seconds to run through his progressions... Um, I think that that's the difference maker, and he wasn't getting that time. I think he was getting hit a lot. I mean, you saw it last in last year's Super Bowl. He got everybody felt so bad for how quickly those Tampa Bay defenders were getting. Yeah, to it was him. insane. I mean, and to that same end, you have, that's going to be a huge key for the Bengals as well. I mean, Burrow got sacked nine times yep. on uh, Saturday against the Titans, yet somehow still <laughs> they still managed to pull it out. I mean, when you're, I mean, you think about it, you probably get about. 10 drives per game and he's getting sacked at least once per drive. Mathematically speaking, obviously that's not the case, but I mean, you're putting yourself behind the eight ball on every single possession essentially. And he was able to kind of bail them out for sure. And if I'm in offensive line, the last thing I want to see is Von Miller on the other side of the ball. I mean, he looked ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think the 49ers offensive line has been um, pretty strong this season. They're going to, They've been able to protect Garoppolo for the most part this whole season. To that end, I think a huge key for the 49ers on Sunday is going to be a mistake-free Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, you can count on him for one or two just absolutely dumb throws <laughs> per game. Like the like the picks. It wasn't a pick six, right? Like against the Cowboys, or was it? Uh, it was almost a pick six, I think, against mm-hmm. the Cowboys. Um like it was just a terrible throw, like thrown in the triple coverage when he could have should have just thrown it away. On a completely side note, I would love to thank you for beating the Packers because that opens the door for Aaron Rodgers to maybe go to the Saints. So thank you. <laughs> well, and then Sean Payton. Sean Payton just left, which that 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 hurts. That hurts. People are joking that Taysom Hill is going to be in the next head coach just because to save on salary because of his yeah, contract. Yeah, well, I really think that Taysom Hill will not play for the Saints next season. I think because they yeah. have until March to waive him. I mm-hmm. think he'll get waived. You can't have. I mean, you can't justify paying that money if he's not your starting quarterback. 
Yeah. And I don't think he does enough, especially outside of a Sean Payton system where he'd be useful. Yeah. I mean, selfishly, I really hope he ends up in San Francisco just because I feel like if there's a coach out there that would be able to uh, figure out a way to use him correctly or not, not really correctly, but just like find a way to use him within the system. I think it would be Kyle Shanahan. And to that end, also the Cowboys, Kellen Moore, he's always been one of the innovative minds. And I think Sean Payton had a lot of creative plays, especially with that option with Hill, mostly in Hill's earlier days before he got that big contract. And then I feel like this season he was kind of underutilized. Yeah, especially was, when Winston got the nod for the starting job, it was almost like, "Well, you're a star, you're a backup quarterback, so you can't play because if you get hurt, we won't have a quarterback." Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, if he gets hurt, then you're without. Then you had Ian Bach, who couldn't even get a first down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was painful to watch for yeah. sure. Um, moving on to some jazz news, I was I think I claimed the crown for the first week of being 100 right. I think this is the first time that that's happened this season on the Quick Fire podcast. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I have no idea. I, I, <laughs> if, in my mental tracker, this is the first time that one of us has been 100% right. Lost to Houston, win against Detroit, lost to Golden State, lost to the Suns. And what I said was Kevin Porter Jr., I don't know if he actually played in that game or not, but that Houston team, and Christian Wood especially, that Houston team is has a lot of great young talent, and they can shoot the ball. So. I mean, the Jazz's perimeter defenders, I've said this a thousand times, but they can't stay in front of people. And I think that that is hurting them right now. They started riding the ship a little bit when mm-hmm. they came off of that five-game losing streak, but now they just lost three out of their last four. Um, and they have games against the Suns, Memphis, and Minnesota this week. And the Suns and Memphis are both scorching hot. I mean, you just literally lost to the Suns yesterday. Yeah, I mean, we've we've I've talked about this a few times before about how... The Jazz really, really should want to try and stay off of that four or five seed line because then you have to play either the Suns or the Warriors in the second round. Well, that's garnering that you get past the first round. And if you were on that four or five line, you could very well end up playing a team like Dallas Mm -hmm. or like the Clippers or even the Nuggets where historically the Jazz have always struggled against the Nuggets. It's always been a neck and neck matchup, even without Jamal Murray. And I think that the best case scenario for the Jazz would be where they get that three spot. And I don't think it's likely, especially because Memphis is Mm -hmm. so red hot right now. But where you play a team like Minnesota or Los Angeles or even Denver, I think that Denver's a tough matchup. But I'd rather play the Lakers or Minnesota than I would rather play uh, Denver or Dallas or even Memphis. Yeah, and I I don't want to be all doom and gloom because I've always I've been more of like the optimist with the jazz Especially so now far that I'm in the studio because that <laughs> yeah. I will never be an optimist for the jazz. Um, but I honestly feel like, and granted they're still going to make the playoffs. There's no way they're not going to make the playoffs, but they are eight games back from the one spot. Yeah. But, um, this stretch of games this week, I think will make or break their season, at least as far as like the expectations go for the season, because I mean, you're playing sons at home, who is actually only the second time they've played this season. So you still have two more against the Suns. But then you're playing at Memphis and at Minnesota, who are two of the hottest teams in the NBA right now, two young teams that are up and coming. And Anthony Edwards did get injured, so you hope that he's okay. Because, I mean, you want to be able to gauge your team's talent based off of a full-strength team. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you you look at the Grizzlies, they're currently in the three seed spot. And then the Timberwolves, they're right there at the seven spot. So, they're these are teams that you're more than likely going to have to go through to make it to a Western Conference final. And the way the team has been playing the last two, three weeks, they need to figure it out very quickly or else they're going to just keep plummeting down the standings. And I've been saying that the Jazz have been the healthiest team in terms of COVID this season. But this past two we- these past two weeks, they have been finally kind of... Mm-hmm. It's, I, to me, it's karma because yeah. they've been claiming a lot of wins over teams that haven't been healthy. But they have finally gotten hit by that COVID wave and have had players out like Gobert. They've had Mitchell out with an injury. Now they have Gobert out with another injury. So they haven't been full strength and I will give them that. But at the same time, what I'm saying and what I've been saying is they don't have the depth to win without Gobert, Mitchell, or Conley. Or even, I would even go as far as without Bogdanovich. Without any one of those four players, they can't win a playoff series. And I'm sorry, but Jordan Clarkson coming off the bench and shooting 30 shots for you is not going to help increase your depth. Yeah, for sure. He'll have big games for you, but he won't be able to produce when it matters most. Like in the playoffs, he's not going to get you 40 points in the playoffs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's not the type of guy you want to rely on to score 20 points per night. I mean, you need your starters to put up that kind of production and they haven't really been getting that kind of production of late from them for sure. And I think Mike Conley is the main facilitator for that Jazz team. I think that he, with him in the lineup, they're able to get open looks. They're able to get out on the break and he's able to find uh, the open man, right? But with mm-hmm. him out, I feel like the offense breaks down into Mitchell isolation or Gobert posting up back to the basket. And then you try to, the defense, you try to hope that the defense collapses and you try to kick it out to the shooters. Mm. But I mean, most solid NBA defenses, barring that you're not the Trailblazers or the Lakers, are going to be able to rotate over on that. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of been a running joke I've seen on Jazz Twitter with like the the injury report. I've seen people like, oh, Mark Durant, he's the color commentator for BYU basketball. He was kind of poking fun about how like he just didn't care about the game last or. I think it was Sunday night against the uh, against the Suns because he just knew they were going to lose. He's like posting all of his his entire family is out for, <laughs> because they just don't care <laughs> or like they're just tired of watching the team lose and stuff like that. It was just I think that's kind of a microcosm of how Jazz fans have been feeling of late. And I think that a lot of Jazz fans uh, are overly optimistic at times, but I think yeah. that this pat these past couple weeks have been a reality check. Because, I mean, last season they got the one seed, but granted, it was a COVID season mm-hmm. and the West was not nowhere near healthy. And now I think that the Jazz are almost getting a reality check where they are not the top team in the West by any means when the West is actually healthy. On the flip side, you're glad that you're hitting this rough stretch right now rather than pre-All-Star break, break or even, even in the playoffs. I mean, losing four straight to uh, the Clippers, I mean... That was easily their worst stretch of the season, obviously, losing four straight to the Clippers. Um, you'd rather have that type of stretch now when the games, I mean, they obviously matter, but they're not like going to make or break your season. Yeah, and I think that right now the Jazz are still kind of searching for an identity, especially when you don't have a consistent lineup. Um, and I think, don't be surprised when the Jazz make a move before the trade deadline um, and kind of shake things up a bit, because I just think right now it's currently constructed. They're not going to make a title run. Yeah, for sure. 
And this week they play versus the Suns on Wednesday, at Memphis on Friday, and at Minnesota on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to say 0-3. I am tempted to say 0-3. <laughs> I'm very tempted. You know what? I'll give them this. I will say at the Sun or versus the Suns, they will get the win. They'll get the home win. And then they will lose to Memphis and Minnesota. I'll say they go one and two. Uh, I'll say, hmm. Gosh, this is a tough one. I was so going it, It's hard to be the optimist when you've seen how they've been playing. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say two and one. I think they'll beat Phoenix and then lose to Memphis and then uh, beat the Timberwolves. I think that's the the game. The game I'm most confident about is that game on Sunday against the Timberwolves. Timberwolves. Is what I would say. I don't know though. It it really depends on is Gobert in the lineup. If not. Towns is going to walk all over them. Yeah. And I think that Minnesota has the shooting to absolutely stretch in those Jazz defenders. And Anthony Edwards is an, an incredible slasher. And the Jazz can't defend the drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Royce O'Neal, whose Jazz fans tell me is one of their best defenders, gets beat every play down the floor. Gosh, wasn't he was... Um, was he the one that was on the... So when Westbrook dunked on Gobert last week, was he the one that was... Supposed to be guarding Westbrook yes. when he just yes. totally cut. He, West, Royce O'Neal has been pulling one over on the NBA, making them think that he's a solid defender. <laughs> and I will make this a public statement. He gets blown by and he will literally step back and put his arms behind his back when, a, when an offensive player drives past him. And then randomly, every like three or four plays, he'll just smack at the ball and most of the time clobber the offensive player. Like he is not a good defender by any means because he can't keep anybody in front of him. So I think that um, that poses difficulties, especially when he's a player that has such high usage in your rotation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Quickfire Podcast. Be sure to tune in next week for my uh, jazz pessimism, as well as to see when I'm right again, uh, <laughs> and uh, as well as to be updated on all UVU athletics and uh, happenings around the Wolverines. See you guys next week. Thank you.